be reading from Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 46 this morning. And uh, let's be thankful for God's word each and every day, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. And uh, in recognition of his word, if, if you're able, please join me in standing to honor the reading of his word. Again, this is Matthew chapter 22, verse 23 through 46. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her as their wife. Jesus answered and said to him, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He answered them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand so I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Well, let's go to the Lord. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we do pray and ask for, for your help Lord, knowing that we are insufficient in and of ourselves to understand truth and apply it. And so, Lord, would you now allow your Holy Spirit to give us instruction and illumination as we receive your word. And would you transform us by it for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You and I are going to be asked many kinds and types of questions in our lifetime. Questions matter. Some of you who are just finishing up your last semester or a semester in college have had your fair share of questions, haven't you? 
as of late. The glazed look in your eyes prove it. Questions matter. When you think about questions in school, whether it's in high school or taking those year-end exams or quarter exams or the SAT or whatever the, the test is next that's coming down, you know, questions matter. What, what you do on a particular test, how you answer specific questions will in turn impact your life in one way or another in school, how you do and your GPA, and that will certainly impact other things. There are other questions that, that come up in life as well, but sometimes in relationships, and how you answer questions in a specific relationship will impact your life for your good or for your bad. And sometimes questions, and depending on how you answer certain questions in relationships, will lead to the big question one day if you answer all the other questions appropriately. And when you think about employment, going to get a job in the workplace, when you, when you are given a job application or sit before a supervisor in an, in an interview, you are being asked certain questions and how you answer those questions will have an impact on whether or not you get the job or get a promotion or whatever the case may be. So questions matter much. Don't undervalue questions in life, but rather see their significance and importance. Good or bad, questions matter. Well, here in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was, was undergoing a thorough examination. He was being really barraged with all kinds of questions. It was his final week in Jerusalem, and he was being confronted with multiple questions from multiple groups of people. Just think about the, the structure of Matthew chapter 22. You go back to, to last week's text when Omar preached about paying taxes to the government. Jesus answers that classic question. They, they come to him with a question, right? They, they come to him and, and, and ask him about but what they should do when it, was it, when it came to taxes. Is it lawful, lawful, verse 17, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So you have really a political kind of question there confronting Jesus about the issue of taxes. In our text this morning, you have theological and moral questions that they're now asking Jesus uh, in, in the passages before us. And so you have multiple kinds of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, not likely uh, companions, but in this case, they, they were. They were coming together to confront Jesus with, with really some political kinds of questions to, to try to trick him. You have the Pharisees who continued to confront Jesus and ask him about the, the many different things that they ask him about concerning the law and those kinds of things. This morning we have the Sadducees uh, who come along now and, and ask Jesus really a question that was more theological. It was rooted in the Bible, but, but it was a theological question. Again, they were using as a trick. Didn't matter what, what kind of question it was. Just think about this. Some of the greatest political, legal and religious minds of the day all were now coming together in this great tidal wave of questions, and Jesus stood there and answered their questions perfectly. He, he took all of all this onslaught of questions from the greatest minds of the day, and no matter how they approached him or no matter what they approached him with, he prevailed every single time. The thing that these had in common, these people, Pharisees, Sadducees, the, the Herodians, they were different. They had their differences. They had their own personal conflicts. But they stood united in their opposition to Christ. 
And here's, here's the main point of what we see in Matthew chapter 22. Standing in opposition to Jesus will always leave you humiliated and defeated. Standing in opposition to Christ will always leave you defeated. That's exactly what happens here. They were united in their, their, their opposition to Jesus and bringing questions from different angles, and he prevailed in every single case. I want us to walk through the rest of this passage today in chapter 22. and In these final encounters that Jesus has with the religious establishment, I want you to see three particular ways that these people opposed Jesus, because these three ways that they stood in opposition to Jesus are still ways that people today stand in opposition to Christ. Remember, standing in opposition to Jesus will always leave you defeated, so let's look now through the example of these Sadducees and Pharisees of how people can be opposed to Jesus so that we continue to stand firm in our pursuit of Christ and following Jesus and defending the faith even when it comes into uh, living in a, a life in a world that stands opposed to Christ today. How can we be opposed to Jesus? Well, let's look at several this morning. Number one, we are opposed to Jesus when we are indifferent to God's authority. You see that here in, in the first passage that we have today where the Sadducees come to Jesus and ask him about a particular question. Now remember, last week the Pharisees and the Herodians had, had managed to, to throw, really, especially the Pharisees, they, they've thrown every pitch that they could at him. They've asked him about all kinds of different things. And they've, they've just, you know, every time they throw a pitch, Jesus slams it out of the park, right? I mean, it's, he crushes it. No matter what they ask him, he's, he's, he's crushing it. So they send in a reliever, right? You baseball fans, here comes the reliever, the Sadducees. Not much of a reliever, but here they are. So they ask him a question. Now, now the Sadducees were part of a religious establishment. They were part of a group that helped make up what we know as the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Jewish council. So sort of the, the big, big group, the larger group, they were part of that. Pharisees were also part of that. But the Sadducees had a prominent place in exercising authority over the people, but under the watchful eye of Rome. And so they had a very... Their, their position was political, but it was also religiously motivated, so they, they tried to bridge the gap, if you will. When you think about the Sadducees, many, many often refer to them as the liberals of the day. They, they tended to deny anything supernatural, specifically the resurrection. They, they, they just did not believe in the afterlife. They, they were opposed to anything supernatural, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in the resurrection. And so, so they come to Jesus and ask him about the resurrection. Now, you, you have to, to understand, they were not genuinely interested in his answer. They already denied it. The text makes that clear, right? The same day Sadducees came to him, the same day that the, the Pharisees and the Herodians asked him the, the question about taxes, the same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they ask him a question about the resurrection. They, they already knew in their minds they didn't believe it, so this question was really a trick in their mind. They, they, were, they were thinking, okay, how can, we, how can we trick Jesus? They were attempting to make Jesus look foolish. Bad idea. They were attempting to make Jesus look foolish. Now the question that they asked him was set up by 
a text found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. So they were quoting Scripture, in essence. They were at least referring to Scripture as the basis of their question, although they completely distorted it. They, they were using it as an opportunity to, to ask Jesus' opinion. Now, this particular law in Deuteronomy 25 stated that if a man and a woman were married, but the man died before they had children, that she was to marry the next oldest brother in order to preserve the family name and also as a means to care for the woman of that, that, that lost her husband. And so, married into a family, no kids, husband dies, next oldest brother, right? You get the concept. Well, they set up the, the question from this particular text, and they say, Jesus, suppose this happens, but it happens to a woman seven times. She goes through this seven different times. In the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? Good question. Good question. In the resurrection, who would she be married to? See, in their minds, Jesus was in a no-win situation. Because either, number one, he denies the resurrection altogether, or he endorses some form of polygamy. Right? Trick question. No-win situation for Jesus. Wrong. Jesus answers their question. You see that there in the passage. He, he's... Um, they set up the question in verse 28. Verse 29, he answers them, You are wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus' point was, you don't understand the concept of resurrection. You don't understand what happens later on in life. And so he gives them a basic answer. Now, he doesn't unpack a full doctrine of post-resurrection relationships here, but he just sort of gives a little sliver of it and says, listen, what you experience now in your human relationships, even in a marriage, is going to be vastly different in heaven. Once we all are, are, are resurrected, have glorified bodies, and live for, forever on, in the new heavens and new earth, the relationship's going to be different. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I just know that it will be different, but it will be better, right? It will be even better than what we know. And so he says, listen, there's, there's this, this whole idea of marriage and, and, and stuff is going to be different after the resurrection takes place. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so marriage is, is really a, a something that we experience now. It's going to be different later on. We need to understand that, that he's, he's, he's addressing what really is a silly question because they're, they're trying to make him look foolish. But he gives them a suitable answer. Whatever our relationship is now, it will be different in the resurrection. Notice, by the way, he says that you'll be like angels in heaven. Don't, don't misunderstand that passage. We won't become angels in heaven. We will be like them in that they do not marry and are given to marriage. That's what he means there. Sort of a pet peeve of mine, so sorry if you've done this. When somebody dies, they, they say, well, God just needed another angel. Please don't say that. That's not biblical at all. Uh, we, we, we receive glorified bodies. You know, we are different than the angels, much different than the angels. And so, little side note there, make that little mark. You can talk to me about it later on if you have issues with it. Uh, but they're indifferent to God's authority because what I want you to see here is that the focus is not upon the concept of resurrection. It's, it's a side note. They're using that as an argument to try to trick him and make him look foolish. But Jesus brings back really the, the, the critical piece, and it's found in verse 29. He says, you are wrong because you, neither, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. 
You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. This is not the first time he's questioned the religious establishment's understanding of the Bible. Multiple times already, Matthew 21, verse 16, verse 42, he has said, have you not read? I mean, guys, you are Pharisees, you are Sadducees. Have you not read the Old Testament? Do you not understand what, the, what it teaches? Now listen, this response is, is significant. What he says in verse 29 is an indictment upon them. He is confronting them in their ignorance and their refusal to submit to the authority of Scripture. They pride, this, is, this is significant because the Sadducees, they prided themselves in, in being committed to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the rest of it, but they, they had sort of this this superficial commitment to the first five books of the Old Testament. So they, they sort of prided themselves as being even law experts, even, even in, though differently than the Pharisees. So they had sort of a, a commitment to the, to the law. And basically Jesus says, you have no idea what the law says. It would be like for me, if you were to come to me, some of you engineer types, and you were to explain some kind of grand design you're working on. And you explained it, and I looked at you and said, have you ever cracked open a math book? I mean, really? I mean, that, you sort of get defensive, right? You know, I know math. Well, that, this is really what Jesus is doing except compounded here. He, have you even opened the Bible? Have you even opened the Scriptures? Have you, do you have any kind of idea what it says? Friends, I want to show you two significant problems that happen, that develop, when we are ignorant and indifferent to God's authority in the scriptures. Number one, you have theological error that happens. That's exactly what happens here. They denied the resurrection. They were denying the resurrection because they ultimately weren't submitting to the authority of God's word. They never embraced it. Here's the issue. Listen, get this. When, when your starting point for a particular belief is anywhere else then God's authoritative word, it will always end up in theological error. When, when your starting point is concerning the things of God, concerning the things of life, death, and, and the afterlife, when, when we're, we're talking about these kinds of categories, when your starting point is anywhere else than God's word, you will always end up in error. It's just a given. They based their belief upon what they saw and what they experienced instead of the objective standard of God's revelation. And don't think for a moment that you and I don't do that. We will develop understandings and explanations and doctrine based upon what we think or how we feel instead of submitting ourselves to the authoritative scriptures dangerous thing to do because that that affects everything your doctrine of god your doctrine of man doctrine of marriage doctrine of salvation doctrine of this doctrine of that when your starting point is anywhere else than the scriptures you will end up in error every single time Telling the truth when I say that you and I are tempted to do the same things. We, we will conjure up beliefs, even entire belief systems, based upon 
our own experience or how we feel or what we think. How many times have you, have I, have we, have others said, well, I think this is what God means. Or, I know what the Bible says, but I really think... Friends, be very careful with what you think. Because if it is not brought into the submission of God's word, what you think will be flawed and will be, will be deceived. Results in theological error number two, it results in skepticism. Notice Jesus says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Again, in verse 31, he says, have you not read? Have you not read what, what was said to you by God? And then he quotes Exodus. Verse 32. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the, resur- or, excuse me, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. In essence, Jesus is saying, Okay, you want to you go back to the, to, to the law, to the Torah, to the, to the Old Testament law? You want to quote Deuteronomy 25 and try to use that as a trick to me? Let's talk about Exodus 3, burning bush. You'll know that passage, experts, and I'm sure they did. But if you want to get Scripture, let, let's really talk about the truth of what it says. Let's go to Exodus 3 and use that as an example. You know, if you know your Torah so well, then you surely remember Moses' encounter with the Lord through the burning bush. And it's there in that episode of of Exodus chapter 3 that the Lord told Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, but he died. He says, I am. They have been long gone. At this point, I am right there in Exodus chapter 3. You have whatever you want to call it, hidden reference, implication, whatever you want to say, but I think a clear understanding of the doctrine of, of resurrection. I am the God, I am their God right now, right now as I speak. They've been dead, and he says, I am their God, implying they were with him. See, the Sadducees denied the power of God because they didn't believe that God could raise the dead. But Jesus uses the Old Testament to say, in fact, he does. This is what happens when we abandon biblical authority. We become skeptics and deny the supernatural. Just ask Thomas Jefferson. He took the Bible and cut all the miracles out. You can go to museums today and see his little Bible where he cut all the miracles out because he didn't believe in the supernatural. The Sadducees represent so many people in our culture today. In an attempt to to really divert the focus or in an attempt to truly being confronted with the claims of the gospel, with, with the truth of what was going on in their day and time, with, with the Messiah standing right before their eyes, they, they, they turn the conversation into difficult speculative matters. You ever encounter people like that today? 
you're trying to talk to them about the Lord, you're trying to help them understand, and, and they want to get pinned down in one of these little controversial issues. Well, what about this, you Christians? Let's talk about this issue, and they want to get bogged down in this issue, and they have no, no desire to, to truly understand what's going on. It's exactly what you see here. They're trying to discredit the entire thing by being fixated on one issue. Friends, ultimately, the, Sadduc- the Sadducees, through their rejection of God's authority, their theological error, their now their skepticism, really reflected a heart problem that was in rebellion against God. That was really the issue. They had a heart issue that was in rebellion against God because they refused to embrace and submit to his authoritative word. Listen, they were practical atheists. That happens even under the umbrella of Christianity today. I just read an article this past week in the Washington Post that was entitled, How to Take Christ Out of Christianity. And it began to unpack and unfold this cultural Christianity that exists today where you can be part of a congregation and have no Christ. Or, if you prefer, you don't even have to believe in the divine. But we sort of like the moral, ish, the moral, moral compass of, of Christianity, so we'll cling to that. There's this, there's this thing we, you can look up today, and I, I even printed it off here, called the Sunday Assembly. It's an atheist church. Right here it is. Their public charter says that the Sunday Assembly is a godless congregation that celebrates life. Our motto, live better, help often, wonder more. Our mission, to help everyone find and fulfill their potential. Our vision, get this, our vision, a godless congregation in every town, city, and village. They're sending out missionaries. They live better, help often, wonder more. Some of their beliefs, if you want to call it that, 100% committed to, to the celebration of life. We are born from nothing and go to nothing. Let's enjoy it together. It's motivating, isn't it? Number two, we have no doctrine. We have no set text, so we can make, up, we can make use of wisdom from all sources. Number three, we have no deity. We don't do supernatural, but... We also won't tell you you're wrong if you do. We're radically inclusive. Everyone is welcome regardless of their beliefs. On and on we could go. Perhaps this is the extreme, but this is where this kind of, this is where this leads. When you abandon biblical authority, this is exactly where you go. Because listen, there will be all kinds of people that want to make use of Scripture to try to trick you and to try to trap you to try to make you look foolish. And if they're going to misrepresent Scripture or outright deny its clear teaching, then listen, you and I must be prepared to defend our faith from the Scriptures. When I say that is, listen, yes, they've abandoned it. They're rejecting it. They're, they're, they're moving away from it. But listen, you and I should never apologize for having an objective, authoritative standard that we know as Holy Scripture. Because this, this word will outlast any skeptic. Don't apologize for that. They were indifferent to God's authority. And there are many different ways that even, even you and I can, can, can demonstrate indifference to God's authority. Number two, another way that 
that opposition to Christ is, is manifest is through misrepresenting God's word or misrepresenting God's law specifically. See that in verses 34 through 40. Now the Pharisees, right? So far, again, Jesus has, has crushed every, every pitch they've thrown at him. So they send in the, the reliever. They, Jesus takes him out. And so now they send in the closer, a lawyer. Amen? When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, this was not a foolish question. It wasn't a silly question. It was a legitimate question. In fact, this was not uncommon in this day and time. Understand that, that this was a question rooted in the law. It was more ethic, ethically motivated, but it was rooted in the Scriptures, and they were curious. And, and it's a fair question. After all, there were 613 laws that they had sort of outlined. from the Old Testament. Fair enough. Which one's the greatest? And for them to suggest some sort of ranking was not unusual. They would often talk among themselves, the rabbis would often talk among themselves as to what was the weightier or the lesser elements or the lighter elements of the law. And they would refer to the commandments, that this commandment more, has more weight. This is a lighter commandment. And so they would often use that kind of language. And so they, this was a serious question. And without hesitation, Jesus goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. We've read that a couple of times this morning, which says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. That's what he says, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. But then he goes further. He says, by the way, a second like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus just took them, never mind, they're thinking 613, which one's he going to come out with on top? He comes out with one and then gives a second and says, by the way, all of them are connected to these two. Good answer. Deuteronomy chapter 6 was part of the Shema, which every good Jew recited twice daily. It was a passage that they would have known since they were little. And so Jesus is saying that the command to love God is the greatest because all other commands depend upon it and are the practical expression of it. So your obedience to the law is an obedience that is motivated by your love for God, which is the greatest commandment. Many, many people think that Jesus is basically pointing to the Ten Commandments here because the first four have to do with relationship to God and the, 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 the rest of the, the commandments, the last six, have to do with relationship to man. And he's, in essence, summarizing the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, which is a representation of all the commandments. And he's saying, listen, it, this is how it works. Love God, supreme, that's the greatest. Second is like it, love others. Think about those two for just a moment. It's a brilliant move on Jesus' part because he doesn't ignore the law he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He doesn't ignore the law, nor does he ignore the relationship that God desires with people. Consider the two points. He says, love God. 
Now, again, this, is, this, is, this love, this commitment is, is more than just believing. We know that, that even the demons believe in God. Satan believes in God. They just hate him. They don't love him. Not only are we called to love God, not only are we commanded to love God, but we are called to do so with heart, soul, and mind. Now these are not mutually exclusive, but emphasize that our love for God must come from our whole being. Everything about you ought to be committed to, to loving and revering God above all else. J.C. Ryle said this, great Anglican, he said, Love is the grand secret of true obedience to God. They who do the will of God the best do it from the heart. Love God. Now, you think about that. Again, this is in the context of them asking questions, trying trying to test him, and he answers their question. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's a command. Love God. Think about that. How how do you command someone to love God? Because that's what it is. It's a command. It's given in that kind of imperative. It's, It's given in that kind of way, has that kind of weight. You shall love God. God, how, how are we to pursue this kind of love? How do we gain this love? Because you're not born with it. You're born with this sense of rejecting him, not seeking him, not loving him. You're at enmity with him. How do you, how do you, how do you pursue this, this love? I'm reminded of what 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Listen, you and I will not have a heart that loves and adores and treasures God above anything else in this world until we first have met the love God has for us through Christ. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you will not love God as he commands you to love him. Until you understand the love, the amazing, sacrificial, determined, consistent love, compassion that he has for sinners like us. You and I will not properly love him. We will not obey him. We will not serve him. So listen, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this is impossible. It's impossible. Because even when we have a relationship with Jesus, that love for God is still imperfect. And it will not be perfected until the resurrection. To the other side, we talk about as as glory and being with Christ. How do you pursue this love? You pursue this love by being confronted with the, the love that God has for you and seeing that he loves you and that he gave himself for you by sending his son to die for your sin so that you could be forgiven of your sin, so that you could be pardoned and adopted and justified and brought into the family of God, not on any, any merit of your own, but upon the full merit and complete work of Jesus Christ. So that if you would simply say, I am a sinner, I am fallen, I do deserve the judgment that God has reserved for those who reject him and stand in opposition to him, but you are captivated by the love that he has for you through Christ and you yield your life in faith to Jesus. 
Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Depend upon Him. For your salvation, you will be brought into His family. You will be pardoned. And then and only then will you begin to understand that the love that God has for you will, will in turn inform the love that you ought to have for Him. Friends, you and I, those of you who are Christians, which I would assume is the vast majority in this room, you understand, especially some of you who, who came to Christ later in life, you understand what it was like to, to not have this love for God. Did you just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to love God today? Did that happen? Well, what happened is when you were confronted with the, with the grace of God and, and were brought to Him in saving faith, that's when your heart began to, to love Him, to treasure Him. So love God. J.C. Ryle, again, quoting him, he said, we can never really love Him until we are at peace with Him through Christ. So if you don't have peace with God through Jesus Christ, my, my urge to you, my plead with you today is to, to quit trusting in yourself. Quit trying to work your way. Quit trying to do what the Pharisees did. What's the great commandment so I can just do it? So I can just do my way into heaven? That doesn't work. They were so rooted and misguided by the law. It had its place, but they were placing their faith in the law, not in what the law pointed them to. That's where they went wrong. The Pharisee way is what must I do to be saved? What command do I keep? And the way of Jesus says, love God, which only comes from knowing the love he has demonstrated for you in Christ. Then he goes on to talk about loving neighbor. Flows right out of the first one. We could preach an entire sermon on what it means to love neighbor. In fact, in the fall, we're going to do a series called The One Another's, and we're going to talk about what it means for us to be as the body of Christ doing the second commandment, basically. How we love one another by doing all the other one another. You could go to Luke's gospel, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and and that's such a great picture of of how we're to love our neighbor. Loving neighbor means that you genuinely seek to invest and love people, even people who aren't like you, even people who don't look like you and are uncomfortable to love. We're called to love our neighbor all around us. We could go on and on. In fact, the way you love people is a reflection of your love for God. The second commandment, the second greatest commandment, is, is a reflection of how well you get the first one. You won't properly love people unless you are properly relating to God and loving Him. Again, don't confuse how you relate to God. Love is the motive through which we should see the law, not vice versa. So opposition to Jesus is revealed when we have more love for the law than we do for the one the law pointed us to. Number three, our opposition is revealed in those who are calloused towards God's provision. Now the tables are turned a bit. And Jesus presents them with a question. He's been the one that's been answering the questions. And now in verse 41, when the Pharisees gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. My turn, Jesus says. And he asks them the most significant question that could ever be asked. What do you think about the Christ? Friends, how you answer that question will mean life or death. 
What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they immediately answer, as any good Jew would answer, the Christ, the Messiah, who they were anticipating, he's the son of David. Are they right or are they wrong? Yes. He is the son of David. But they had an incomplete picture, an insufficient picture. They saw this, this, this son of David as this one who came out of David's line who would come and politically redeem them and rescue them. Another great king like David. So they say, the son of David. It's a prominent theme even in Matthew's gospel. And even when Jesus came into Jerusalem back in Matthew chapter 21, what did they say? What did they say about, the, what did this crowd say? Jesus came in on that triumphal entry and the crowds that, were, went, that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to who? To the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Saying, who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Son of David is not just an Old Testament term. It's certainly, certainly carried right over to the New Testament. And then what Jesus does here is quite powerful. They answer the question and they partly get it right. But then he asks them another question. Well, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, he quotes Psalm 10, 110, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, Psalm 110. Verse 44, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then he says again, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? If the Messiah is the son of David, then how in Psalm 110 does David, in this messianic psalm, call him Lord? How does that work? I never refer to my sons as Lord. They want me to? I'm not doing it. So how does this work, right? Psalm 110 asserts the divinity of the Messiah. No one, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. No one sits at the right hand of God that is not divine. The thing that this psalm states is the royal glory and power of the Messiah and the victory, the triumph of the Messiah until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus' point here by quoting Psalm 110 is saying, listen, the Messiah, the son of David, He is far greater than you can imagine. He is far greater. He is far more significant than your little feeble minds can even begin to take. He's even greater than David. Jesus says, indeed, he would even be David's Lord. That was a big statement because of how they revered David, their king. And now there was one that was greater, greater than him. Friends, you and I need to get this. We we need to understand that Jesus is far more than any one of us can fathom. He is God 
in the flesh, fully divine, fully human. He is the one who came to put all enemies under his feet and to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language for himself. And the Pharisees were standing face to face with that very person. And all they could do was remain silent. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Friends, when you are confronted by the Messiah or by the claims and truth of the Messiah, silence or this kind of silence is not the adequate response. Submission and worship is the adequate response. Pharisees remained resolved to put an end to him. They still remained opposed to him. And notice the grace that Jesus exhibits here. This is grace. I mean, how many times had they confronted him and stood opposed to him and tried to do him harm and tried to make him look like a fool and tried to trap him? And in grace, this is the very last conversation, the very last conversation Jesus has with the Pharisees. He talks about them. In chapter 23, he talks to the crowds and the disciples about the Pharisees. But this is the last time he engages them in conversation. And what is he doing here? He is not condemning them. He is not trying to make them look foolish. He is exposing the wonder and glory of the Christ. In grace, he's laying before them the claims of Jesus, the claims of the Messiah himself as one last opportunity to see him for who he truly was. And they were silent. What about you, friend? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Is he merely the son of David, royal king, political deliverer, nice guy? Or is he the son of the living God who came to give himself for you and for me, so that we could be adopted into the family of God. Questions do matter. And that question is the most significant question you or I will ever be confronted with. And how you answer that question, it will not only impact your present or your job or how much money you're going to make. It has nothing to do with those things, really. But how you answer this question will impact your eternity. So who is he? Is he just the big guy in the sky to you, a good buddy? Or is he the Lord? Is he king? Is he savior? Who is the Christ? That question is the most important question you will ever answer. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy. 
that you've given us through Christ. We thank you, Lord, for how you have exposed our dark hearts for what they are and how you have shown us the beauty and glory and wonder of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that that in these, these accounts that we read, even in his interactions with all of these leaders and all of these rulers, Lord, that he stood firm and that he continued to persevere in truth. And Lord, ultimately it was these leaders that were exposed in their error, not Jesus. So Lord, today as we consider these things, as we consider the truth of Christ, as we, as we, as we consider our own hearts, Lord, I, I would ask that you would search our hearts, that you would expose us to where we have been foolish, for where we have tried to put Jesus in a trap, God, would you expose hearts that have been indifferent to your authority? Maybe hearts that have, have pursued a legalistic way of trying to, to earn or do our way into heaven. Father, maybe there are some in this room that remain callous. They, they hear these things and they're just silent. Just silent and go on their merry way. God, would you open hearts and would you open minds and would you make this truth real in our hearts? Would you bring about change? God, that we would not be a people who are opposed, but we would be a people transformed, living, in faithful, joyful submission to the risen Christ. God, would you move in our hearts? Would you have your way in our lives? Would you be glorified in us by your work? Change us, O oh God, where we need change and help us to see where we're not seeing. May Jesus be supreme. May he be glorious. May we love you above all else, O oh God. Would you help us? Because we are sinners. Change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.